Hello, Michelle Laurie here, and as promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane, and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio, or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so you know we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian True Crime Live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. The producers of this podcast recognize the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. The following podcast contains content of a graphic, violent nature and is not suitable for children. Imagine your limbic part, that fight or flight component of your brain. That It's like, imagine you're in a hotel and the fire alarm is going off constantly every single day of your life, every minute of your life. That's what it's like. You walk out of your cell in maximum security and it is battle mode. If you do not go out with that mentality, you're going to get crunched. And whether that's people saying, he's weak, give me your buy-up or do something of that nature, you have to go out with the lion's mentality and be ready to go absolute violence at the drop of a hat. 
When he was just 12, Geoffrey Morgan ran away from his country New South Wales home to Redfern in Sydney to stay with his mum. He thought his dad was being too strict and he wanted more freedom. This was a time in Redfern when the inner city suburb was the centre of Aboriginal life and activism and it was a tough place. Geoffrey spent a lot of time on the streets, getting involved in minor offences as a means of survival, namely stealing food to eat. But eventually this escalated to stealing cars and then robbing banks. He started cycling through maximum security prisons, which added up to 18 years of his life. He was always into fitness and taking care of his health. He loved sport and he could run. And that came in handy a lot for him over the years. During his last stint in prison, Jeffrey had one of those moments where he knew he had to change. And he did it through education and peer support and keeping fit and healthy. His passion is health and fitness, making it realistic and sustainable and role modelling a different path for men just like him. Jeffrey's a pretty extraordinary man and here he is. Up until about 12, I was in and out of Redfern, Bondi, Waterloo. Father's German-Austrian, mother was Aboriginal. Parents were sort of wishy-washy together and I was push-pull, push-pull sort of nature, I suppose. I think it was more the physical side of my father's discipline that got me out onto the streets. I just couldn't take it anymore. And when I hung jump out that window at 12 years of age, I had no thoughts, no plan or anything. Obviously, for me, I, I figured it was better to be out on those streets than in that space with my father. I just couldn't take it anymore. I used to walk up and down. There was a tunnel at the domain that connects to the city, and it, it's got this walkway, and you basically, oh, like the airport, you stand on it and it carries you along. But underneath there, it was so warm that I would go up and down that all night until I was exhausted and I couldn't stand or walk anymore, and I'd literally sleep on the end of it. And I'd wake up in the morning and people in suits were walking by me like I didn't exist. And I think on the back end of that, I had to grow up. I was hungry. I'd go three days, how can I get into this can? You know, I need food. I'm hungry. And that's where it sort of stemmed from. I just came out of this survival mode. I got charged, I think, at 12 years of age, breaking in it. I had no intentions to you know, be James Bond and take some diamonds or something. It was just pure survival and that was it and then when I say survival even a change of clothes yeah. um, walking around the streets with the same clothes on or and you're smelling your teeth not brushed and you're still growing I mean you must have needed bigger shoes at some point bigger pants 12 years of age have a look at your kids that are age or your nieces your nephews and think about that kid walking around the streets just yeah I was lost so at 14 though you decided to go back yeah, I just, oh, I suppose I got sick of the streets and it was probably after I got out or might have had to get out on bail somewhere and have a physical address. And that's probably where I went back to my mother's place, top of Redfern, during its peak of destruction to the community and to the world. There are several other examples of an emerging initiative and independence, self-help and self-knowledge. All those enterprises are based in Sydney. Most of them, in fact, here in Redfern, an inner-city suburb. They were all organised by the Aboriginal people themselves. The leaders, the activists, are mostly young, and they're a group only in an informal sense, 
but put together, their views give quite a coherent picture of frustration, impatience, and anger. Black power means the uh, economic independence to enable black people to be able to determine their own destinies. I don't believe that we're really going to get anything through working through the system in this country because you know, the system isn't geared for what we're asking for. The arid heartland of the Australian city is the scene of the black activist. That's because the big city is the only place where Aborigines can learn at close quarters how the white system works, how to use it, and for some of them, how to confront it. They're in a hurry, certain that they've been badly done by, and rather aggressive. As a 14-year-old kid, we, we couldn't go out on the street without being pulled over, strip searched, patted down, maybe given a few uppercuts, which, you know, looking back on it, probably deserved um, the cheekiness of ourselves, throwing bricks at police cars, police cars set on fire. It was just absolute mayhem and there was absolute lawlessness amongst ourselves we just had no regard for the community the police the respect was out the window uh you know full of drugs a lot of partying i'd go home you're lucky to get a bit of a foam mattress side of that which would usually be full of bed bugs rats crawling over the top of these cockroaches were just totally normal people who you didn't even know walking into your house stumbling drunk or stoned and oh sorry sorry nephew and yeah how do you how does a kid get out of that and i I say to anyone imagine having stay up till two o'clock tonight and then go to work tomorrow morning at your normal time and then do that for a whole week and see how well you go at work and how tired and grumpy you get adding all the other additives and then the role modeling is you can be the best money maker in any way, shape, or form, illegally or destructively. And you just got a, a recipe for absolute disaster. Like sexual assault, even as young kids, what you see is people, and it becomes normal where drunken nights turn into people sharing experiences that aren't meant to be happening, probably. That's the best way of putting it. And, you know, things just get brushed under the table and, I think that takes a hit to you. You're a young kid and you're like, oh, just keep your mouth shut and you didn't see anything meant to. They don't say it, but it's sort of an unwritten rule, yeah, as it is in the world of crime. And our way of sorting things out, my first response to anything was violence. And we grew up and everything was straight into how do we resolve this? We'll show you how to resolve it. And If you go that far, I'll go as far as I need to go. It's crazy. It's not crazy. It wasn't crazy to you. It was everything you'd learned. You know, that's the only way to finish a situation is to finish it, mm. you know. And it doesn't help when um, people around you don't have high expectations. They're like, oh, well, we don't expect any better. It just feeds into everything. Well, in a, it's kind of worse than that too, wasn't it, though? I think it suited non-Indigenous Australia for a long time to have this spectacle that was Redfern on the news, on the TV. Absolutely. And it was... We had this, I suppose we came out of this whole racism component behind Aboriginal communities and that stolen generation and so forth. And Redfern was the hub of a lot of activists, Charlie Perkins and so forth. You had these people that were really vocal out in the community, Cecil Patton, Paul Coe, doing huge things for the community. And we became the foot soldiers in our heads. And I'd get around Charlie Perkins quite a lot. We sat in the back of the car one day heading to Newcastle and he said, son, do you think that Brick you throw has a message? And I said, oh, for sure, we're boss. 
that was sort of around those lines. And he said, but does it change anything in regards to the laws or acts or anything that are for our people? And I said, not really. He goes, well, then it has zero effect. And I was like, oh, wow. And I sat there as a young kid. This was somebody that started to have a huge influence and impact on how I started to think about things. Mm. And my perspective to the world started to change. What I'm doing, I need to shift somehow and become more educated to deliver a message of. And mine was really about probably health at that point in time. So many people, the violence, the domestic violence, the, the sexual nature of things that would get brushed under the table. So the overall health and well-being, the alcohol, drugs, cancers, heart disease, diabetes, and all the other illnesses that were there, to me, I was like, hey, we've got to get more out of ourselves. You were getting that epiphany quite young, but you still ended up in maximum security prisons and you served a lot of time. You served 18 years in total. So having that understanding, but being able to action it when you are in this environment, I mean, how do you start? Where do you start? You've still got a long way to actually go practically, haven't you? So how did you end up in maximum security? Going through the boys' homes as a kid, I just I wasn't a fan of the boys' home as no young kid would be. I decided to run off quite a few times and, and leave that behind, and I was quite good at keeping myself fit and being smart about it. And the first time I come went up to Penang, I said, "Hey, mate, you know you've got a bit of a reputation. Don't try anything here. We've got all these." store boys here which were the blokes who looked after the um, work crew and if you ran off they'd catch you and I was like oh well you just challenged me so my mentality was bang but out of that when you ran off from police once I was 18 if you run off from police you end up with what's called an E2 classification and then basically that sort of process I was doing that quite a lot. Did you ever have an addiction of any kind? I, I say no but I, I have to say that for me to be authentic and, and honest about myself, during a period when my mother had leukemia, I went through this period, went through the old party scene of um, cocaine and, and ecstasy. And, you know, we saw it as uh, like I'm in control of it. And therefore, you know, I'm, I'm not like the other drug users shooting it up and so forth. But realistically, there was times during my bail period, once I got out of bail in Melbourne, that I was just running this absolute destructive lifestyle myself, thinking that that's how I numb the pain of my mother having leukemia and, and sorting through that. And once again, just not having no tools, no being equipped to see things better, I just went down a path that I thought was best for me. Yeah. Oh, I was lucky too. I think during our period in Redfern at that time was so destructive and young kids my age at 13, um, there's a whole heap of them that went into the heavier side of drugs and a lot of them overdosed and died. And I think that scared like really like, whoa, you know, I'm not keen to dabble in that and I stayed away from it. What were your crimes generally? I mean, obviously you didn't do 18 years in max security for running away from coppers. Yeah. um, (laughs) What were we up to generally? So I started out breaking in as just survival food mode. Then it became, I found money. Then I realized oh, the money could get me into a nice warm bed in a hotel. And then that led to a lot of sophisticated breaking in as well. I was getting stuff and then selling that. Then I went into Ram Raids, went through that whole Ram Raid period where um, a lot of luxury cars in Sydney and that went down for quite a while. Went into bank snatches, which was snatching money off bank counters where there was people depositing the money or bank tellers just counting the money up at the end of the day and 
that led into bank robberies itself and I ended up serving two different sentences for two different banks, one in New South Wales and one in Victoria, five years for the first one. The second one, I got 10 with a seven. Yeah, Parramatta, you walk into those evolutions where everyone's having a shower and you had tough men, Bernie Matthews, like these blokes have been in jail for long times, a lot of violence. I, funnily enough, my brother goes, I'll hook up somebody when you get there. I got there and I went in with a bloke. Yeah, he had HIV and I didn't know. We were in Mustang and we were on the line. I was 18 years of age and everyone's like, Mools, you're hectic, man. You're going in with him. And I was like, well, what's, what's happening? What's the story? And he goes, mate, he's got HIV. And I get into the cell and obviously, you know, as a young 18-year-old kid, I was tough coming from Redmond, but that that was a real fear. HIV was just sort of really starting to come to light in Australia. And I suppose I was just freaked out by it. Oh, he could jab me and that was it. And sure enough, went to sleep, heard some noise, and I opened my eyes and the bloke was standing with the fit in his arm full of blood. So I was just freaked out. Um, and I think, yeah, the, just the amount of trauma upon trauma upon trauma, stress. I was always someone who I think I saw it as an opportunity to grow in the environment instead of sitting around talking, yeah, violence and so forth. Yeah, I was growing in a criminality sense as well, but I also read a lot of books. And I think by doing that, I was wiring myself just differently. And then different things would happen along that journey. So you know, by the end, I was, my last charge was bank robbery, um, stolen car with the bank robbery. Uh, and I think that was it. I just never got out of maximum security until I was in Melbourne. And they had cottages down there where you could order your foods, cook your foods and um, interact with three other inmates. Was that new for you, even like cooking and running a household that way? Huge. To be able to transition from hard maximum security jails into that four-bedroom cottage in Melbourne, it shifted a person that he's and I've seen there's a lot of gangland people that came through that system that Mm. got into those cottages and I could see same thing it was shifting them as individuals as much as they still had some habits where they had a mobile phone in the jail a lot of their the cooking the way they spoke they were changing because they were around different types of people and those people had been you know first-time offenders misappropriated funds or something of that nature so their conversations were different so the cottage system, I'm hearing about the kind of stuff you did to get in jail. And I mean, it's obviously high impact, high adrenaline, like it's risky stuff. And then in the cottages, you said that you were able to like, you know, you're sharing space, you're cooking, you're getting your food. Like what was making you feel a real sense of achievement and self-worth in those little um, self-care things? Like just even getting on with four, pe- you know, three other people in those cottages. I'd never done a shopping list in my life. And that's the first time you do a shopping list. You literally get a budget, I think it was $140 at the time for four people over a week. And you'd sort of, there's a whole heap of stuff. You had to communicate effectively with one another because you, you know, if someone didn't agree, you don't want to be punching on in a cottage. And they had big proper knives. There was no bars on the windows. They were so minute, but what was minute to somebody else was massive to us. It was it was life change. It was the whole neuroplasticity of building new patterns and behaviors in our head 
came from that whole experience. Because food is something you could punch on over, honestly. Like with a bunch of adults from these backgrounds, there's something as simple as, you know, what are we going to eat? I don't eat that. I don't like that. That's not how I cook that. That's weird. That sounds gross, you know. Yeah, if you're argumentative people and you're used to solving conflict with violence that's that's challenging every single day and not to mention the shopping list like someone says i want cocoa pops and someone else goes i'm not eating that shit and that's six bucks yeah that's an issue yeah or you can't have big m's because they're bloody expensive massive right and in jail the amount of times that i was using this toaster first that's my bread that's my chicken who took my chicken who took my milk and the level of violence that you would see went all the way to the very end. Someone would go all in on a, I think the 125 um, mil milk. And I, I'm talking, they'll do anything and everything that happened many a times. And it's, I'm like over a milk. Yeah. You could probably feel, uh, well, I don't know, tell me if I'm wrong, but I guess in the cottages, maybe you could sort of relax a bit. Whereas I imagine you're Surely. just vigilant a hundred percent of the time which is terrible for your adrenal system and your mind and everything isn't it imagine your limbic part that fight or flight component of your brain that it's like imagine you're in a hotel and the fire alarm is going off constantly every single day of your life every minute of your life that's what it's like you walk out of your cell in maximum security and it is battle mode if you do not go out with that mentality you're going to get crunched and whether that's people saying he's weak give me your buy-up or do something of that nature, you have to go out with the lion's mentality and be ready to go absolute violence at the drop of a hat. That battle mode, as I said, it's, who wants that? It's, and it's, most of the people, I'm telling you, like, there is organised crime in there. There is people that are just crazy. Like, I've sat down with some people and I think, well, this person will get out and do something to somebody and sure enough they do and I'm like, I knew that was going to. I can read a person that I sit down with versus those are 90% of the jail, maybe even more, 95% of the jail are just going to go out and feed their drug habit and go into survival mode. The rest, there's a, a small percentage of it are really crazy. Like just you think to yourself, nah. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST. And up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I think that the statistics, the the rough estimate is that about 80% of violent people in in the prison system have been victimized first before they became offenders and roughly the same amount of people have mental illness you know be it PTSD or something else yeah undiagnosed or untreated yeah yeah this element of the story that of your childhood is repeated in one way or another isn't it I mean I, I don't know if you guys talk about this stuff in prison probably not that's the thing you can't talk about it that's the worst thing right so as a victim of any form of trauma whether it's a projection of, from somebody else on yourself for those that are sort of listening and, and would understand this you get an opportunity to talk to someone you do that in there you're weak you could not sit down and say hey you know what happened to me as a kid and that makes me realize that that's why I feel I needed to be validated or I, I feel inadequate in this situation or whatever it may be unless you've seen a psychiatrist for court or something of that nature that's the only time it will happen and at that point in time you've built such a big wall towards anything governmental or straight away it's just something that you don't associate with and the disassociation to actually fix yourself or look deep within yourself doesn't happen within jail until you get into as you said probably the victorian system where you can be put into these cottages i went back into prison they asked me to do a a program at macquarie which is up at wellington in new south wales and they've got a new type of system Funnily enough, when I walked in, a lot of people still remember, hey, Morgs, what are you doing here? They didn't realise. They couldn't associate me having normal clothes on. But to see them, they've got dormitories. When I say dormitories, they're all single beds and there's just a single wall between each of those beds. And I think, how do they do it? Because my old mentality is there's no way I'd be sleeping with one eye open. Yeah. But obviously that system change um, has brought about a different way of life within that prison. And I think until systems are are geared towards that, we're going to see people come out. I've seen people grow as, and when I say grow, grow on anger, violence, criminal knowledge level within that system, uh, and they come out unfixed. They're coming out to society and it could be my kid and I recognise this, it could be our kids or it could be our community. These people are human beings and if we can seek to understand, we can help shift their mentality, draw a line in the sand and say, here's how to be better at that next opportunity and that, that helps people grow. The whole thought process of me being in that system, I was constantly going, how can I shift all of this even in my own area, not just in Redfern, but the external suburbs of Redfern, how can we join together and, and see a better way to life? And Redfern's really you know, been a great example of that. Shane Phillips has done huge things to be able to say, hey, 
here's how we conduct ourselves. And he did it. He didn't say that, but he just he led by example, and we just followed. And it, it took us time because we were all ingrained. And people always say, "Oh, you should just give up." And I'm like, "Mate, how many times have you tried to lose weight?" And they're like, 10. And I said, "Understand? How many years has that rolled over between ten years?" I go, "Mate, that's about as, as as long as it takes for us to change who we were." and see that there is a different way to life. And as much as we've got great intentions, we just don't know how to do it. And behind all of that, you've been smashed. You're not good enough. You're just a criminal scum. You're whatever, you know, all these toxic words, thoughts, court reports, judges' comments, people in the community, Redfern's no good. And you take it on. You do take it on and it takes a long time to rewind. We know that in a domestic violence type relationship, you're nothing, you'll never amount to anything and so forth. That person carries that sometimes for the rest of their life. So for me to even come out of that is a one in whatever million chance of, of doing that. And how did you? You've done a lot of jail time. I mean, when did you make the decision, do you think? What was the moment, the pivotal moment in your life? I think I, I dedicated. 20 years to a crew we were all the same crew for a long time we're very well respected and in that world as you know talking to people over time no doubt you've had people that have been killed slept with each other's partners ripped one another off done everything and everything to one another we stuck together we're very loyal so we had a very loyal crew uh, we always had a thing if someone could get off we're gonna we'll say anything and everything in court it was just a way of the and nature of that world and i suppose I was that person. We got our brief and they said, mate, Jeff, you can probably get off this charge. Went down a little path. All right, sweet, you're going to come to court for me yet? No problems. We get through the court case and I had Colin Lovett, who had represented um, Greg Domasevich and Zaragard Wilson. They said, mate, you can beat this if they come to court and help you out. Yet, no problem, easy money. We get to that point and I'd already done a lot of the education. My mind was flipping between both walls. I was trying to learn and sort of shift. And I get back to court. Colin says to me one day, I need your co-accused to come to court and say what you need to say. Yep, no problems, easy. And two of those, they'd pled guilty already, the three of them. And they said, mate, two of those said, nah, look, I'm going to have to ring my solicitor and find out if that's okay. I don't want to mess myself up. And I think at that point in time, I was like, if this is what I'm dedicating my life to, then you know, you got to have a look at yourself. I had two kids that I let down. By this stage, my kids were about eight and five. and They'd missed pretty much all of those years together. And I just went, I think I'm about to bounce out of this world. And I came back after being found guilty in the trial. Yeah, and I felt they couldn't come and do that. You're going to dedicate your life to them and let your kids sit there like that. And you talk about being a man. You know, I had a breakdown in a truck going back to Port Phillip and that was my turning point. I was saying, I'm not going to do this. Went to um, segregation when I came back. So I was in segregation at the time for a mobile phone. And I sat in that cell and I was just contemplating, what do you need to do? Started a journal, wrote out a heap of goals, plans. And at that point in time, I basically, by the time I walked out, I bumped into the professor and he said, hey, mate, you look like a pretty smart um, young chap and, I, you know, yep, sweet, bit of a conversation and would you like to do a um, university degree? I said, where, where do I do that when I get out? He said, no, right here. And I was like, mate, show me what's available and it just fell into place. You know, sometimes people always say you're lucky. 
I think you create your life based around the things that are happening within your life and your perspective and your focus and where that's going towards the life that you want. And I know that was a change. That was just a shift. I was now equipped with different things. I was talking differently. I was dealing with things differently. Violence wasn't the first response. Um, Conversation was communication. I then became a great communicator in between races within the Sydney jars or things that were happening in the Melbourne jars. And I was able to bring a lot of people together that wouldn't normally talk to one another. I think all that combination just went, you can do something different with your life. Everything came together in a positive way. All your experiences, Absolutely. it seems like it all, it, you were able to utilize it positively. And so now you've got a business, Jeffrey Morgan, health and wellbeing consultant, nutritionist and mentor. I mean, you work with all, all kinds of people. You're only one person. What's your main work now? What are you mainly doing now? Yeah, so we do a lot around leadership workshops, mental health and wellbeing type workshops. Obviously, with the background that we've spoken about, we covered so much. And I recognize whether it's your mindset, your well-being, and obviously as a trainer and nutritionist, the well-being side was very easy for me. I was always someone, as you've heard from the crimes, that put a lot of time and energy and effort into a space. So if I stepped into that environment, we were going to win or it was going to happen or something of that nature. But a lot of what we do now is just a leadership in general, mental health and well-being across the country, across the globe. We're in New Zealand. We did, uh, we've done four different workshops in four different locations, uh, Auckland, Rotorua, Wellington and Lake Tapo. And we just came back from Dubai, Singapore, Abu Dhabi and Malaysia delivering the same there. I love your programs. I'm seeing like you've got Cut the Bullshit program. Love that. <laughs> yeah, I love that too. Just for, as an example, can you talk us through the, the Cut the Bullshit program? Like what is that? A, who's that targeted at? I what? might sign up to that. Sounds I know. Great. It sounds pretty inviting, <laughs> doesn't it? It's Look, I had to cut the bullshit on the enabling behaviour I was as a human being period, right? How I treated people, women, my mother, my grandmother, like I was so disrespectful to everybody in my circle. That's the reality. And I, until I cut the bullshit, and I say this now to anybody that listens to this, please be a person that draws a line in the sand, no matter what you've done in your past, whether you've robbed the bank or something of that nature, or you know, just life stuff, cheated on a partner, been deceptive, done your friends wrong, whatever it may be, draw a line in the sand and say, hey, you know, all right, that was chapter five. And at chapter five, I was the villain. But at chapter 50, I'm going to be the hero that comes saves myself. And that's basically what that program is about. What did I learn from that lesson and that experience and that environment to help me grow and prosper? And that means that you look at it in a positive light, even speak it into a positive light. And that's a different transition. And Behind all of that is the resilience of a kid that was beaten black and blue from that age through life, thinking that that was the only way to life. And what we do is we help people bring awareness to what you want. A lot of people say, oh, I don't need your help until they step into the program and go, but man, I wish I'd done this five years ago. Because if I ask both yourselves, what would your ideal life look like? If you had unlimited money, resources, and all of that, what would you do? And we get people to write that out. And I say, are you living that now? And they're like, no. And I'm like, you could do that. And they're like, no, I can't because I work. And I said, that's your fixed mindset, believing that you're in that program. That was me as a kid, believing that 
the only way to life and survival was to go and make money illegally. Until I cut the bullshit and I drew a line in the sand, then I could step in and he will show you and will help you on that journey. And then it's, it comes down to the application from the individual on the other side of that conversation because same as a kid, to be able to apply this conversation as a kid, you could tell me, hey, Jeff, I could change your life. But you had, I had to see different values of how, what about the trauma I was carrying? Are you going to help me unpack that? What about the habits and rituals I carry? Can you help me shift that? So that's what I recognize. Human beings are human beings. We're all built on emotions. What lights us up, what doesn't? We don't want to step into what doesn't. So what lights you up versus the next person? And how can we then create a pathway to that and make sure that you're proactive and productive constantly towards that direction? Some of the first questions I ask, and people are going to answer it for themselves if they're sitting at home, what's your happiness look like? What's your quality of life look like? What's your inner peace look like or peace of mind look like? And if I ask those three questions, just as, and that list could go on safety, security, stability, people will go, I don't know, I don't know, I don't. I ask people, what's your happiness look like? And they're like, oh, 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 I don't know. And I'm like, do you, what's your goal for this week? Don't have one next month. Don't have one next year. Don't have one. And I'm like, well, you'll go through a program of, paying your bills, waking up and going through that motion. And I said, do you feel that that's living for yourself? And they're like, are you judging me? And I said, that's how we're built as humans because now we feel that we're being attacked rather than say, hey, I feel that you could help me shift out of the old version of myself that I'm not happy with, the emotions. I get them to write out what emotions are you living in right now? I'm resentful, I'm envious, I'm angry, I'm bitter, I'm whatever it is, right? Mm. And then I say, what emotions would you like? Oh, peace and happiness. And I say, so what does that look like? What environment does it happen in? What could it happen in? And from where you came from, I think that's the really important thing Huge. is that if we don't take the time to picture where we want to go, then we're just going to be where we are now, five years from now. Uh, and you as a young man in jail, coming from the life that you had been born into and had led, you know, you had to picture this life and it started, the breakthrough came from a cottage in Loddon prison. You know, like that was like this new life. That was this inkling, this tiny pathway, this tiny window into it. And so it takes that imagination and it takes making yourself really see and believe it can happen, you know. And then that's where the inspiration of you is. Uh, it's a lot of people say it's so structured or something of that nature. But I, I went recently went back to Oberon to talk to the young offenders there. And mm. when I went back in, the governor handed me this sheet and I was like, what's this? And he said, read it. I was the first intake for the first young offenders program in New South Wales. I got kicked off that after a couple of months for fighting. But in general, I'd written out all this stuff. You write this letter to yourself. And in general, everything that I'd written out, I'd achieved. And even as a destructive kid, that manifestation of writing that out and unpacking what we subconsciously thinks, think about turns it into a conscious action. And whether it takes one year, five years, 50 years, it won't happen if we just go through life. And, and the classic example was me just saying, all I need is money to survive. And the only thought process was around those two things and not how I could shift that same, those same qualities that I had hardworking, discipline, perseverance, or whatever it was, built me into a constructive manner. And as soon as I said, I need to change my perspective of how I see things, 
I shifted and, and the transition happened really quick and anything and everything's possible. And if a young 12-year-old kid that walked the streets can get into a position where we're talking to global businesses and leaders, the Department of Defence has contacted us, you know, that, that, those conversations, then anybody out there can do anything. You said a little while back that, you know, you had this moment, you broke down in the van on your way to jail. A big part of it was feeling like you'd put members of your crew ahead of your kids. You'd let them down and you realized it wasn't worth it. Where are you at with your kids now? Daughter, beautiful relationship. We catch up, we talk, we conversate, dinner, all of the above um, six grandkids or five, one on the way. Oh, how wonderful. Yeah. Ah, Beautiful. Proud, very proud. But my son, um, the relationship with my son was damaged really badly. And to this day, I still try and mend it as best I can. And that breaks my heart. But I, I brought that on. Yeah, I don't blame society. I don't blame anything. I'm all about what's the solution to this problem? Because I could say, oh, if the government, racism, oh, this, that, and the other, it was me. I chose to do it. And whether I was equipped or uneducated or whatever it was at that point in time, it's not going to fix it by focusing on what was in my past. It's like driving with your head backwards, you're going to crash into the car in front of you. What's the solution? How can I move forward from it? I try to fix it every single day. And, you know, I can only be a better example and try my best at the next opportunity. And that's all I'll keep doing. And whether it's some form of the world coming back at me for the damage I did to the people over the many years, but I just got to keep being the example that I want my son to be to the world. Thanks to Jeffrey Morgan for joining us for this episode. Jeffrey wears a lot of hats now, making the most of the life he's made on the other side of prison. He's a community leader, corporate speaker, and sought after life and mindset coach. His latest online program is Cut the Bullshit which basically is encouraging people to make sustainable habit changes for a healthy, purposeful life. Find out more at jeffreymorgan.com.au. That's Jeffrey with a J. And we'll have details in the show notes for this episode. As always, thanks for listening. This has been another Smartfella production in conjunction with the Acast Creator Network. 
Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well. So, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out.